return to Ecclesiastes, book written around 3,000 years ago, but as we've already seen, extremely relevant. Um, it's like we're picking up the, uh, uh, the, the newspaper. Um, so just uh, amazing study so far. We're trying, trying to pick up the pace uh, a, a little bit. Uh, a book that uh, was written by, as we said, uh, Solomon, who was a man uh, who had the uh, highest office in, in the nation of Israel. Uh, he was the third king of Israel, uh, reigned uh, during a time, as we said, when, when the nation enjoyed uh, peace, uh, a lot of expansion. Uh, it was a time of, of tremendous prosperity uh, in the nation of Is- Israel. Uh, interestingly, uh, his very name, uh, Solomon, is taken from the Hebrew word. We get our, uh, the Hebrew term shalom, uh, which, means, uh, which means peace. Uh, so Solomon ruled over a nation that had enjoyed um, decades of peace uh, on the heels of four decades of war uh, under his father uh, David's leadership. And in that sense, I think it is a nation, and even in Solomon's own personal life, there may have been this sort of attitude, this, uh, this sort of desire to uh, kind of uh, lie back and, and relax and to enjoy life for, for a while. Uh, we'll see how that plays out in, in Solomon's uh, life and his activities and his, his adventures. Uh, we've also made a mention of the fact that uh, God uniquely blessed Solomon uh, with wisdom to, to lead and to rule the nation of Israel well. Uh, he certainly knew what God expected of him, and he certainly knew better than to uh, to worship idols, uh, and yet, as we read about Solomon's life, uh, particularly in the in the book of First Kings, uh, we find that though Solomon had been given great wisdom from God, this great king squandered not only that wisdom but uh, a number of of other blessings as well from from the hand of God. Uh, we sort of see how this it's a sort of a uh, this brilliant beginning moves inev- inevitably towards a very uh, sad and, and messy ending. Uh, and everything that Solomon experienced simply confirms his, his sinfulness, his humanity, his, uh, his accountability uh, before God, and, and his certain death, uh, that death was something that he could not, uh, could not avoid. And, and these are some of the themes our accountability before God, our, our sinful tendencies, the sin- tendencies of our sinful hearts, um, the realities of life, living life outside of the Garden of Eden, uh, on this side of Genesis chapter 3, uh, and yet on this side of, of eternity, and this certainty of death. These are some of the themes that we will we'll be touching on as we go through, uh, through the book. So Solomon, as we said, uh, my, my understanding of this, of this, this message, this book, um, is that this is something that Solomon uh, delivers towards the end of his life. And he's looking back on a lot of uh, poor decisions, uh, sinful decisions. Uh, he's looking back on the abuses of many of these good gifts from God, and he is in some ways expressing his, uh, I, I believe, his, his repentance uh, in delivering a message to, we could say, to the nation of Israel as a whole, uh, maybe even to his own son. Uh, we know that in Proverbs... Uh, that Solomon would often write to his son and say, you know, son, pay attention to the words of your father, pay attention to the teaching of your mother. Perhaps this is Solomon now at a later stage in life addressing a son who's not a young teenage boy, but now who's in, in, his, in his own life in sort of those middle, middle age uh, years, 
uh, maybe in his late 20s, maybe in his 30s, um, and Solomon is, is, is still trying to now pour into his, his son these, these lessons uh, about life. So he comes with this message. We've looked at it, uh, it briefly uh, here in chapter 1, uh, verse 2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And la- last week we looked specifically at the second half of chapter 1 where Solomon made the, 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 the specific point that the labors of mankind living under the sun ultimately prove unprofitable, uh, unsatisfying, unremarkable, uh, unremembered, uh, that this is the life that we live, this is the life that we are dealing with, these are the experiences of life, and there's not a lot that we can do to change, change many of these things, uh, and that this, this task of investigation or even wisdom itself did not prevent Solomon's demise and his, his dissatisfaction. So he sort of pursues what we discussed last week with this sort of pursuit of wisdom, uh, this sort of pursuit of knowledge in Solomon's life. Um, we, we kind of compared it just to someone in their, in their uh, doctorate studies. Uh, Solomon used the wisdom that God had given to him. And again, when we say wisdom, we're not necessarily saying uh, godly wisdom. We're just saying uh, his intellect, this, 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 uh, this uh, um, incredible intellect the Lord had given to him, uh, that Solomon used every ounce of that to try to go down these paths of discovering the meaning, the meaning of life. So he's sort of what we find in the, what we basically summarized last week is that Solomon goes down this path, path of pursuing what we might call academics or intellectualism and comes to the conclusion that that doesn't satisfy, uh, that, that, that ultimately does not satisfy the heart of man. And so what does Solomon do? Does he give up at that point? Uh, not at all. Uh, in fact, he simply turns from what we might refer to as a serious pursuit in some ways to a pursuit of pleasure. Uh, and this is where we pick up today. So let's just, uh, we'll go back and catch the last couple, few verses here of chapter 1 and then read up to chapter 2, verse 11. So verse 16 of chapter 1, Solomon says, I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility." I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, uh, many concubines, 
Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So here's Solomon, the, the preacher, uh, the pundit, the, the teacher, continuing to set before, before us the, uh, the emptiness of, of life, and, and, and that is that that is a life without a practical faith in God. So we're not, when, we talk, when we say the, the meaninglessness of life, we're not saying that there's no meaning to life. We're, we're saying that when Solomon uses that term, he's really talking about life lived uh, on this earth, this living, living in this sin-cursed world without a practical faith and trust in God, believing in the, in the power and the providence and the salvation of God. Uh, he's simply saying that if you, if you, if you live without a real faith in God, if you, if you set that aside, if you, if you disregard God, if you live in denial of God's rightful claim on your life, you will find certain things to be true uh, about life. And Solomon is not like, as we've mentioned, he's not like some, some university professor, some philosophy professor at some college that throws out this, some huge philosophical question and then sits back while all the students sort of get embroiled in, in this heated discussion, Solomon is saying, listen, I, I involved myself in this experiment. So he's just not lobbing out these massive philosophical questions and then just letting people kick these things around. He's saying, listen, I want to speak to these issues. Uh, I want to help you formulate a biblical worldview. I want to help you to think uh, God's thoughts. I want you to have God's perspective. I want, to know, I want you to know where you came from. I want you to know why you exist. I want you to know where morality comes from and how it's defined. I want you to know where you're going and what you're supposed to be doing now in light of where you're going and eternity and all those things. So he's really, he's trying to, to sort of, if you will, sharpen our, our worldview. And so he's not just throwing these things out and then letting us just sort of kick ideas around and, and argue about them. He's saying, listen, I have experimented, I have investigated, I have searched, I have taken the intellect and the wisdom that God has given to me, and, I've, and I, have, I have employed it in this investigation, and these are my findings. And he's simply telling us, listen, don't, don't learn by experience. You don't have to learn by experience. <laughs> you can learn from me. He's just saying, you can learn from the things that I've learned. Uh, you can learn by observation. You don't have to necessarily go through these things and learn some of these very painful lessons yourself. So he gets involved in his own experiment. In fact, in some ways, what he's doing at the, at the, at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 is he's giving, if you will, credentials of why he can answer these questions. He's saying that this is why... I can speak with such authority to these, to these issues of life because I myself personally have been engaged in trying to investigate and to discover the answers to these things. So in this experiment, he, he concludes, life without God is a life without meaning. 
And one of the ways that Solomon illustrates that point in, in, in the first part of Ecclesiastes is by walking us down a number of what we might call dead-end streets. Uh, in the book of Proverbs, uh, Solomon describes life as, in some ways, as a path or as a street uh, or as a way. He, he mentions in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 6, the path of life. Uh, in Proverbs 4.18, the path of righteousness. In chapter 7, he talks about the way that leads to infidelity or leads to adultery. In chapter 8, verse 13, he mentions the evil way. Uh, in, in chapter 14, verse 12, we mentioned this last time, uh, the writer of uh, the Proverbs mentioned the, the way that seems right to a man but results in death. So he sort of uses this Sort of a, it's, it's sort of this this word picture or this this figure of speech, this illustration to say life life is like a street, life is like a, a way, a path, and in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's as if Solomon is saying, "I have traveled down many of these roads myself, and this is what I have found at the end of those roads." So he's just saying, "Listen, you know, there is a way that seems right to a man." And there is a way that leads to death. And there is a straight way. And there is a narrow way. And there is a crooked way and a perverse way. Uh, and so Solomon's just saying, listen, I'm, I'm going to share with you my own experiences and how I have, I attempted to find meaning and satisfaction in, in some cases, the, the very gifts that God had given. And yet when I went down these paths, this is what I discovered at the end of that path. So what are some of these dead, we might call them dead-end streets that Solomon and, uh, of course, many in our day have traveled down and, and found to be uh, wanting? As we've already seen at the end of chapter 1, uh, this whole idea of education, academics, uh, intellectualism. Uh, we, we made the point last week that it is certainly a, a better education does not automatically lead to things like political stability or international peace or fewer teenage pregnancies uh, or, or less stressed or, or an end to depression. And yet we, we hear that in our culture. I mean, we hear people say, we just, we just need to educate more, right? We just need to give people more information. If we could just get more information in the hands of people, then things in the culture would change. Uh, and yet we know that not to be true. I mean, it just, I mean, even from a even from a, just the world's perspective, you, all you have to do is look at the statistics in some of these areas and, and note that just because we, we instruct more and we teach more and we increase the amount of knowledge that people have, it doesn't automatically solve some of these issues in, in, our, in our society. In fact, um, I know people that are educated and I know people that are di- very disciplined uh, in their lives uh, but aren't able to make the simplest of decisions when it comes to knowing and doing the will of God. I mean, there's, there's not this automatic connection between academics, intellectualism, and knowledge and doing what's right. Uh, in fact, we even said last time, in some cases, the more knowledge that you give people, I mean, again, you have to deal with the sinful heart of man. You have to deal with the depravity of man. So in some cases, you have people that the more knowledge you give them, they just find ways to use their knowledge to, to, to do more sin. I mean, they just get more creative in the ways in which they can fulfill their own sensual and selfish desires. Uh, and, of course, in Solomon's life, we know that the pursuit of knowledge certainly didn't bring an end to his own, his own concerns about death or his own 
his own his own depression or any of those things. So where did he turn? To what other potential solutions? Well, he turns from this pursuit of wisdom uh, to the pursuit of what we might call unrestrained pleasure. And so what happens here in chapter 2 is he, using sort of a, 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 mon, a form of a monologue, Solomon investigates the gain or the profit of a number of areas of, of his life. Um, and again, we might call these, the, these the dead, different dead-end streets. So he says in verse 1, again, he's saying this to himself, so it's sort of self-talk, and you see this. There's other people in Scripture that sort of do this. Uh, the psalmist sort of, a, you know, bless the Lord, O my soul, is sort of coaching his own soul. Uh, we see Hannah speaking sort of things to herself in her own heart. Solomon says, there, there's, there, was, a, there was a discussion going on between me and my soul, my, myself, and, and this is what I said. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself and behold it too was futility now solomon knew what it meant to be tested uh the same word here that he that he uses here for for testing is also used to describe what happened to him over in first kings chapter 10 verse 1 a passage we looked at a few weeks ago when it says in first kings 10 that the queen of sheba heard about the fame of solomon concerning the name of the lord and she came to test him with difficult questions. So in, in the same way that the queen of Sheba came to him to test him, Solomon is basically saying about himself, I, I tested my, myself. Uh, just like the queen of Sheba wanted to see what Solomon was really like uh, by going to where he was and by spending time with him and by seeing what her questions would evoke from him, so Solomon would test his own heart, spending time observing what would become of him with pleasures. Uh, and again, these pleasures, in fact, you could translate this. It's, it's actually translated in a couple of ways in the book of Ecclesiastes itself. It can be pleasures. Uh, it, it could just simply be things that bring us a sense of joy or gladness or happiness. In some cases, it's translated as, as delight. Uh, and, and, it, and again, it's not necessarily sinful things. Uh, it's not necessarily things that are inherently sinful or, or off, limits, uh, off limits. So Solomon says here that he determined to test his own heart, to learn how his own heart would respond to those things under the sun that attempt to pleasure it, that attempted to, to pleasure his, his life and heart. Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, what we could say is he, he, he was taking, he, he, I mean, clearly we have the proverbial wisdom that he himself gave to us. Uh, what we don't have or what Solomon doesn't give to us is, is that experiment, experimental wisdom. And so it's, it's as if I think Solomon is testing to see if the things that he says he embraces here and maybe even says he embraces here, but are these things, do these things actually play out? So there's, I'm just saying there's, there, we learn things two ways. We, 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 we learn things by observing things. We, we learn things by experience. I mean, God told Adam and Eve, 
this is what you, this is how you're supposed to live. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're not supposed to do. And yet they didn't know what that would be like experientially to actually take the fruit and what would be the consequences. So they had a, a knowledge of what God had said, but they had not actually experienced those things. And I think in some ways it's Solomon saying, I, I know these things to be true, but he had not necessarily experienced. And there's a lot of things. Think about it in your life. Think about the things that you tell other people to do or warnings that you give other people, things that you know that are wrong, but that not necessarily from personal experience. You don't necessarily do that. I mean, you might be applying some general principles and saying, listen, I've experienced things sort of like that. There'll be things in this list that some of you will say, well, I, I haven't gone down that road. I mean, in some ways, I haven't gone down that path. And you have a choice. Are you going to trust Solomon's wisdom here? Are you going to trust what Solomon's giving to us? Are you going to trust God's revealed word in that you don't need to go down that path to learn this, to learn that these things are true? And, and, and so part of it is that. Yeah, now how much of that, again, I mean, I, you know, I've had, some of you come up and, and have asked me about Solomon's spiritual condition. Uh, how can a man who is a true believer even go down some of these paths? Um, you know, we don't have a lot of information uh, regarding that. Um, what you don't necessarily, you don't really see a, a declaration, I guess, of Solomon's faith. Um, you do see a lot of statements that, are, that cast Solomon in a, in a positive light. Uh, and even side by side with, with his father and, and the way that his father ruled, and we know David to be a man after God's own heart. Um, so how much of that, you know, the, again, this, this to me in some ways is, a, is, a, is sort of a book of extremes. I mean, it really is saying, listen, I have gone out to the, to the nth degree on these things. Um, how far can a believer go and still be a true believer? Well, I don't think any of us know that answer. Uh, I mean, how far can a Christian go in sinning before they're not, you know, we would say they're, they're, they, they can't be saved? Well, you know, if you have the answer to that, please let me know because I counsel people every week that, you know, I mean, I'm shocked and amazed at some of the things I hear. And yet I'm, I'm not assuming that just because these things have been experienced by these individuals that they're not believers. That all depends on where they go with it. I mean, that all depends on their attitude towards their sin. It all depends on where they in some ways end up. You know, what, where are they going to go from here and how are they going to finish? That reveals a lot. And we've talked about this in Hebrews where it says that we're to, you know, to, to be, be mindful or imitate the, 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 those who have gone before us. Um, and a, as we view the result of their faith, the end of their faith, and, and the need for us to be patient in our judgment of other people because we really need to see how they finish in the end. Um, and, and that just is a caution to us to not make, again, not make heroes of people too soon. Um, because a lot of times we follow after people and then we make them our heroes, but then 10 years later they're not even following Christ anymore. So, you know, it, it's, you, you, we are, I mean, admittedly we're having to piece some of this together. I mean, we're sort of the, the, the life of Solomon and where the book of Ecclesiastes fits in. Obviously, you can't do everything that Solomon is even claiming to do here and not be at the end of your life. <laughs> I mean, just based on what we know out of Kings. And yet, the message is sound. And when, when, for Solomon to be saying some of the things that he's going to say in this book, I don't know how he could come to those conclusions and state them so emphatically and at the same time reject everything that he's telling us to say, this is the way you need to live life, and I've been down these paths, and they're dead in streets, and don't go there, and then for him not to be a man of faith. So how you put all that together, it's, it's a little bit of a, 
it's, it's a stretch for us. I mean, it's a stretch for us to piece all of the things we gain from the narrative sections of Scripture in with books like Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and, and Proverbs. So, uh, you know, these are, and what we'll see in this list of things, these examples of things that Solomon experienced, again, these are not all off limits. Um, many of these things are things that God himself has given to us to enjoy. It's just the amount of joy and the extent of the joy that, that, that can be given to us by these things is, there's an end to that. Uh, we're not meant to trust in those things, and yet those things are given to us not to shun necessarily and to avoid and to say, oh, we can't do that. Well, maybe we, we can do that, but maybe, we, but maybe we just need to realize that as we engage in those activities in life that we're going to stand before God and give an account. And it's that knowledge of that accountability that keeps us in check. So is it wrong to, you know, go to a movie? Is it wrong to go to Six Flags? Is it wrong to buy yourself a new cell phone? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. But just remember, every purchase, every day, every activity, you're going to give an account before God. And if we just lived with that in mind, it would curb a lot of these things in our lives. So these things aren't necessarily sinful, not necessarily off-limits. Solomon determines to test his own heart, to, to learn how his, his heart will respond to these things. And honestly, Solomon is, is, mo- is most likely uh, doubtful that there is anything in the world that can satisfy his soul, and yet he's committed to testing his theory and, and weathering the truth of what he finds, and weathering the truth and the, and the consequences of, of what it brings. So he says to himself, indulge yourself. <laughs> Pleasures are yours for the taking. Enjoy yourself. And there are many of us who know full well what it's like to say those words to ourselves. I mean, there's, there have been times. Um, I've done the, you know, I'm aware of the background checks of, uh, of, of, the, of, the, of folks that serve here in our, in our church. And occasionally there's some things that pop up on those background checks. You know, you're like, you can look and go, you know, person was 19. You're like, yeah, I, I get it. You know, this person's in their 50s now, but you see a background check and you're like, it was just something involved in some sort of some college day, you know, some shenanigans, some, some, some season of their life when they were living, you know, foolishly. But we've all to some extent done this. We've, we've all lived uh, and, and said to ourselves at times, enjoy yourself, indulge yourself. Uh, Jack Eswine in his book Recovering Eden says this, quote, foraging for pleasures we rebel as teenagers or in our middle, midlife crisis. On our walls we put up posters or take them down. How many of y'all ever put posters up on your wall? All right, so <laughs> the young people are like, well, put posters on my wall? Why would I put po-? Although I guess there are still posters. <laughs> But that was just a big thing when I was young. And teenager, back when I was young, I mean, that was just a big thing. People had posters of their all, all their things that they, that they followed after. He says, we take our jobs and we leave them. We drink our booze or we give it up. We take our medicine or we quit it. We undress with strangers or refuse to do so. Marry our spouses or leave them. Have our kids or estrange them. We dye our hair or leave it natural. Change our clothes or garage sale them. Save our money or spend it all hoping that in some gas station in life, a figurative or literal lottery ticket with a winning number waits for us to find it. There's, there have been times in all of our lives where we've said, enjoy yourself, and we've gone too far in these pursuits. And uh, some of us may still be chasing these kinds of things. And we, we do this, and then, and then a year later we're doing the opposite. 
you know, but why don't we do that? Well, because this thing here didn't satisfy. This thing here did not play out the way that we thought it would play out. It didn't give us that lasting contentment. And so sometimes we try something else or sometimes we do the very opposite of the thing we were doing before. I think about that phrase, enjoy yourself. The very phrase itself implies that you are to drink in what only the self can provide. And the self can only offer so much. The self has its limitations. The ability of ourselves or any other created thing to entertain or delight us is substantial, but it's not as enduring and satisfying as we may have thought it would be at first. You remember over in uh, Hebrews eleven twenty five, where it talks about Moses there, that he, he chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to what? In experience uh, the pleasures. It uses the term pleasure. It could be enjoyment. The passing enjoyment of sin. So we're, we don't want to, we're not naive and in, 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 we don't want to think there is no enjoyment in these things. I mean, there, there is a, a joy, a level of enjoyment in the kinds of things that Solomon's talking about here. It's just not what we thought it would be and it's never as long lasting as we thought it would be at first. Someone said it's like being stranded on an island with three board games. I'm going to date myself again here. Yahtzee, (laughs) Yahtzee, Scrabble, and Sorry. Every night, there are always options for a fun time, but the options never change on an island that we cannot leave. So it's like, it's as if this list of things that Solomon's giving to us here, it's like there is a limit to the number of things that we pursue. I mean, folks, the things that people are pursuing now are not much different than the things that people were pursuing a thousand years ago. (laughs) Now, has has technology changed? Yes. Has communication changed? Yes. But at the basic fundamental level of the heart of man, we are still chasing the same types of things. We are still going down the same dead-end streets that people have gone down for centuries, all the way back to the time of Solomon and even back, we might even say back to the Garden, Garden of Eden. So this is what life is like under the sun. What what the preacher basically tells us next is that life under the sun always has a set of basic games available for us on its closet shelves. And the generations come and go, but the games that are offered don't change. It's still Yahtzee, Scrabble, and Sorry, right? So what does he say? And and this is what he's going to do. He's just going to give us a list of some things that we are guilty of pursuing, uh, trying to find lasting contentment, satisfaction in that that leave us wanting. And the first one he mentions, interestingly, is laughter. Joking, jokes, entertainment. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? You remember in what First Kings said about the times during the height of Solomon's reign. First Kings chapter 4, verse 20 says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance, and they were eating and drinking and rejoicing. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. That's quite a feast. That's a lot of food. 
Um, in fact, some have estimated that it would take thirty to 40,000 people to consume that much food every day. That's an entourage. I mean, we're talking about some serious banqueting, all right? Um, so you just have to, you, you just try to picture that scene. I mean, this, the, the hilarity and the laughter throughout the palace halls, Solomon and his courtiers and his guests exchanging jokes and drinking, listening to the witty merrymakers from all over the region, feasting, eating the choicest of foods, drinking the finest wine, sampling the joy and the fun of life, laughing and having a good time. And laughter isn't a, necessarily a bad thing, right? In fact, laughter is, is, is in some ways a gift from God, and there's a time to laugh. Ecclesiastes, I mean, Solomon will make that point in Ecclesiastes 3, 4. But laughter cannot fix all that is wrong under the sun. Uh, there's a story of a man who went to see uh, a, a doctor, actually a psychiatrist. This is back in the, in the early 1800s in Manchester, England. The man was sick. Frightened by the terror of the world, depressed by his life, unable to find happiness anywhere with nothing to live for. Uh, he confessed to his the psychiatrist that he was suicidal. And the doctor decided that after examining him, there was nothing physically wrong with the man. So he advised him to lighten up, to get out and to, to enjoy himself and to go see at that point a man named Grimaldi, who was the clown in a, in a circus that was had come to town. Uh, he, he advised him to go see Grimaldi, the clown, because he was the funniest man alive. And the man looked even more downcast and helpless and confessed to the doctor, I am Grimaldi. Now, we could, there's a lot of modern day illustrations of this, right? I mean, can you think of any comedians that have been suicidal? <laughs> Can you think of comedians, people that made you laugh in some ways, maybe through your life, that are, I would say, confessing regularly to their counselors that they're suicidal and they're having those kinds of thoughts? Proverbs 14, 13 says, Even in laughter the heart may be in pain and the end of joy may be grief. So sometimes laughter is just an escape from reality. Um, Always laughing, always joking, always giggling. Uh, even though that is clearly not what the heart truly needs. Proverbs 25, verse 20 says, Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar or on soda, is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. And sometimes laughter is just not, it's just not appropriate. It can be a good thing, uh, but it doesn't solve all the problems. It's not always appro- appropriate. Sometimes it's a sign, we might even say, of superficiality. Uh, laughter can also become an instrument for folly, or as Solomon says here, it is madness, uh, which according to Derek Kidner indicates, when we think madness, we think cra- you know, loony, crazy, but Derek Kidner says it's, it has more, more along the lines of uh, speaking to moral perversity rather than mental oddity. Uh, in other words, a lot of laughter and a lot of joking is frivolous and superficial. Sometimes it's cynical. Sometimes it's sarcastic and even cruel. Making jokes about things that ought to shame us. Uh, Laughter can be an excuse for mistreatment of another person, maybe even those in our families. Rather than confessing our sin and seeking forgiveness when we offend others, often we blame shift and tell people to lighten up and to not be so serious. Proverbs 26 verse 18 says, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death 
so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, was I not joking? (laughs) So laughter can be a blessing. Uh, You can hear the laughter in the halls of the palace. You can hear the laughter among the people of Israel as they experience this season in their nation of great uh, prosperity and peace. And yet Solomon will go on to say in chapter 7, verse 3, that sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter. And when we get there, we'll, we'll dig into why Solomon makes that statement. So it's a dead-end street. Again, it's something that's not necessarily wrong, but something that if that is our escape, if that is the thing that we think is going to give us meaning, satisfaction, is going to answer the, the big questions of life, uh, we're going we're gonna to run into a, a dead end there. Uh, What about alcohol? Another dead-end street. Verse 3, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. Again, like laughter, wine can make life merry. In fact, Solomon will again make this point in Ecclesiastes 10.19, but we must never forget the... I guess you say that wine makes a poor lover. In fact, it's a mocker. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Proverbs 23, 29, Who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. But you'll notice what Solomon says about his experimentation with wine. He says that he did this while his mind was guiding him. In other words, he evidently wasn't necessarily giving himself over to just what we might see as just sort of drunken debauchery. But he was drinking in moderation and then soberly and thoughtfully assessing his experience. (laughs) In other words, some have said Solomon, in what he's describing here, he's describing himself more... As a connoisseur uh, characterized by sophistication rather than an alcoholic characterized by inebriation. So it's, it's as if he's drinking a little and then he's thinking and he's like what the experience is. is do- so he's not just like diving headlong into this. It's as if he's testing. Okay, what about this drink? And what about that drink? And what about that drink? And what happens if I take this of that drink? And what happens if I do this amount of that drink? It's as if he's, and, and even, even the tastes, even the, the, everything involving the experience of that. This was just another area that Solomon sort of dove into and examined. And, and, and even, even if it is a modest enjoyment of wine with our wits intact, even though that, even though that may in some ways delight us, even Solomon would agree that it would, it would never do so with the gain that we long for. That if that's the place, if that's the thing that we're looking, uh, looking to or, or we're looking at for, for, for lasting satisfaction, it's just, it's just not going to last. Now, without, without telling us the results of, of his search, Solomon passes immediately to an account of his vast building and land improvements. Verse 4, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. Uh, we know that he, he devoted 13 years of his life to building the king's house. 
his own home, First uh, Kings chapter nine verse ten. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon, which is mentioned in First Kings chapter ten, and another house for his wife Pharaoh's daughter. We also know that he built the cities of Hazor, Megiddo, Gezer, Beth Haran, Baalath, and Tadmor in the, in the wilderness. So extensive ex- expansion, in, as we mentioned, in, in his kingdom. He goes on, I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. So Solomon then moves into this these areas of horticulture and gardening, uh, essentially the nursery business, it sounds like, uh, where his grounds become his gallery. As an artist, as an architect, as a designer, he creates plans for how he wants things to look and to work. Uh, He combines the beauty of nature with his own creativity. He, He imagines and then sculpts things that others who came to visit would notice and admire. But once again, a dead-end street. There was no lasting gain in it. Uh, I just sort of, I sort of, I sort of put over this categorically personal projects, just personal projects. Um, I mean, and the list of personal projects is endless. I mean, we have examples of all of these things, but you can imagine. I mean, all of the other things that Solomon attempted to do, and people in life do this. People that don't have a real faith in God but are trying to find meaning in life, this, these are the kinds of things they pursue. And some people just get busy. They just get busy doing one thing. Um, you know, I'm going to add on to this thing. I'm going to add this extension. I'm going to tear that down. I'm going to build a new one. It's just a constant cycle of, of improvements. So these, these, these pr- improvements uh, and to these personal projects, Solomon says he adds many possessions. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. So Solomon not only had works, but he had workers. He had two kinds of slaves, those that he purchased and those that were born in his, in his household. Uh, not to mention the 30,000. 1 Kings 5 says there were 30,000 Jewish men that he drafted to work on his various projects, which became something that was an aggravation to the people. Uh, the fact that he would sort of force people into that kind of labor. But that's a lot of, that's a lot of constructing. That's a lot of personal projects when you have to go and, and get 30,000 men to help you. <laughs> you know, I'd love to have... Four, you know, just four of you guys want to come over and help me weed eat. We could use some help with some weed eating, you know. Could we not use some help with weed eating? Just four guys. I mean, 30,000? I mean, you can get a lot done with 30,000 men. Solomon had that kind of power over people. He he had something that many people crave today, a, a desire to rule over others, a desire to boss them, a desire to have the power to dictate to others the service that, uh, that we want for ourselves. Sometimes we just want more influence. Again, this is something that people pursue and chase after. It's a dead end. But they want the influence. They, 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 they become overly concerned uh, about who they know, uh, their connections, where they live, what they drive, the clothes that they wear, the gadgets that they own. 
Thomas said, I, I had all that. I mean, I had all those things. I had that influence. And I had money. And I had possessions. Solomon had a huge amount of purchasing power. Amassing rare and, and curious things as his fleets returned from Tyre and Tarshish and Ophir. These, these, these various ports uh, off uh, the... the um, the coast of Saudi Arabia and the coast of Spain. Gold, silver, sandalwood, pearls, ivories, apes, peacocks. I mean, we have these actually listed for us in, in First Kings, all of the things that were brought back to, to Israel from foreign lands. Now, is there anything wrong with gold and silver? What about a peacock? That's a little strange, don't you think? That's, they're pretty noisy. Anything sinful about owning a peacock? No, nothing wrong with silver, nothing wrong with gold. In fact, there's nothing wrong with money, right? What's the problem, though? What's the root of all evil? It's not money. It's what? It's the love of money. Wars, crimes, theft, family feuds, betrayals of friendships, parents growing up without knowing their kids, kids growing up neglected or bribed or entitled, all of these things flowing from greed, and covetousness, and discontentment, and envy, and the pursuit of wealth and power. The end of verse 8, he says, I provided for myself male and female singers, and the pleasures of men, many concubines. And this uh, is not to get it too technical, but there's some discrepancies as to what this this, uh, mention of concubines on the end of this verse. It's just difficult, difficult to translate. Um, most translations go with, with that. Uh, I think the King James le- leaves that out or re- restates that, but you wouldn't get the idea that he's even talking about uh, a harem or, or this uh, concubines, although I think the reason why people favor the translation is because we know that that is supported by First Kings. In other words, we know we have some uh, additional information in the Old Testament that, that Solomon did have those, that he did have numerous numerous wives, so we might say, well, I mean, what are those things here? You know, what, what, what is Solomon mentioning here that he, that he pursued and that was a dead-end street? Uh, we could put sex into that category, I think, safely as one of those things. Solomon certainly lived out the fantasy of, of many men in the world, uh, making a, a lady feel that she was one of the chosen among women, different to him than, than the other women, he could have who were in his kingdom, having lots of women ready and willing to satisfy his sexual desires, and yet we know that that will never satisfy. And, and the reality is even, even the wonder of sex, the way it was meant to be, cannot bring about the gain that we lack under the sun. So even if it wasn't something of an immoral nature, even if we just said sex the way that God intended it, even that is not intended to, to, to provide us with that kind of enduring satisfaction. Music and songwriters, uh, he mentions here having male and female uh, singers. Music and songwriters give us, can give us pleasure and point us to meaningful joys. Uh, Solomon evidently put in what we might call a living sound system and piped the music throughout his landscape. And so he had evidently all of these gardens and all of these 
you know, beautiful things surrounding the palace, and then he simply filled all of these places with those who could, who could sing and, and produce music. Uh, and music is a powerful thing. In fact, according to a survey, I looked this up last night, uh, done, this is done by the Edison Research Group in May of 2014, said that most U.S. residents listen to roughly four hours and five minutes of audio every day. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot. I think half of that was radio. Um, and then they had different, ca- different kinds of category, digital music that we, that we own on our devices and all the way down to uh, sort of talk radio and, 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 and things like that. But four hours is a lot. Uh, very influential in our lives. Uh, it has that sort of uh, international appeal. It, it evokes memory. It stirs the imagination. And we probably all had a moment when we turned up the radio, closed our eyes, and lost ourselves in the voice, the melody, and the rhythm of a song. You ever do that? Some song comes on. I, I mean, you know, don't have to be. Don't act spiritual. I, I know you're, you're you're going. Oh yeah, Joel. Yeah, when I was that some 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 hymn or Amazing Grace. But I mean, sometimes. <laughs> When I've seen that, most often it's actually been sort of a blast, you know, from the past kind of thing. Somebody just, they hear a song and it takes them back to some point in their life. And they, I mean, you just get lost in it. But what's the problem with that? You close your eyes and you get wrapped up in that moment, but eventually you have to open your eyes, right? Especially if you're driving. Especially if you're driving. Yeah. Yeah. Now, John used to call me. You'd be on the road and he'd get me on the phone and he would start singing. Have y'all ever had that experience? I know that's what worried me. And so I'd say, John, just make sure, brother, your eyes are open. You're singing. He'd sing some song at the top of his lungs. He was in. Have y'all ever experienced that from John? You have. Okay, it's a blessing. I'm not picking on John. I just, I'm just like he's he's barreling he's barreling down the road in a with a tractor trailer, you know, doing 55 miles an hour. Right, John? Yeah, 55. <laughs> The, the, the point is, it, just think about it. I'm just saying, whether it's, whether it's sex, whether it's money, whether it's music, whether it's other, some other form of, of pleasure, these are not things that are necessarily evil. In fact, many of these things God has given to us as gifts. But what Solomon is saying is, but the ultimate answer is not there. And, and that experience, yes, that, you do, there is a sense of pleasure. There is a sense of gladness. There's a sense of joy, but just realize that you get caught up in that moment, but then five minutes later, you, you have to open your eyes, and guess what? The, the, the dishes are still in the sink. They're still there. The dirty diaper's still on, right? The traffic's still, you open your eyes and <laughs> maybe that's what, hopefully you're stopped. Maybe that's what is stopped in traffic. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's what it is. So you get lost for the moment, you open your eyes, but the traffic's still there. It's, it didn't go away. So the song ends, and when we open our eyes, we realize that not much has changed. He says, Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. It's as if, it's as if Solomon is saying that, that, that to see our work with our eyes is the reward or the gain that we get. But that moment of seeing the work is the best the work can offer. You know, there is that sense of when you do something, you sort of complete a project. or There's that moment of you kind of look at it, and it's like, ah, but then that's it. 
it's as if he's saying there is a form of enjoyment, but that moment, it, it, it's there, and you enjoy it, and it's pleasurable, but then it's over. Verse 11, thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and, la- and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So he just says something in all of these pursuits, something was sadly missing. Because true joy cannot originate with man himself. Um, the pleasure just won't last. So that's why a young, a young man, can he can get engrossed in a video game that may offer 36 awesome, incredible, life-changing levels and absorb and absorb this thing can absorb his 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 whole attention but once those levels are overcome he will pine for a new game bored with the thing that once thrilled him people just keep chasing and they keep chasing and they keep chasing we have more forms of alcoholic beverages and drugs we have access to more forms of sexual perversion we have more music we have more wealth we have more forms of entertainment than any any generation before us we have te- we have more technology and yet we have more boredom. We have more restlessness. We have less meaningful communication and more misery. Lots of outward activity, but still no steady inward satisfaction. In fact, some of the busiest people that I know are some of the most discontent people that I know. Why? Well, C.S. Lewis says this in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He addresses this gainless search among the joys offered to us under the sun. Quote, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy, if offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. So even though there are, there are these pleasures in the world that, are, that are, are ours for use, they can never satisfy what only God can. And don't get the idea that God is against pleasure. Psalm 1611, You will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. But pleasure apart from God is a grasping for the wind. Charles Simeon said this, that there are but two, two lessons for the Christian to learn. The one is to enjoy God in everything. The other is to enjoy everything in God. To enjoy God in everything and to enjoy everything in God. All right, folks, so when we come back uh, next week, uh, we will pick up here in uh, verse 12 of chapter 2. So thank you. Thank you for your time. <clears throat>